I have the privilege of uh, reading our scripture passage this morning. Uh, we're starting at the very end of Exodus 1, so take a moment to turn there. If you have one of the blue and white Bibles underneath the seats, that's on page 29. Um, like I said, last verse of Exodus chapter 1, that's verse 22, and then we'll go uh, through chapter 2, verse 10. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Hey, welcome to Soma. I'm Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I um, want to encourage you, if you are, as Dave said, if you are uh, interested in, uh, in pressing into this conversation around racial reconciliation, uh, maybe you're not interested, and that's all the more reason you need to be there. Uh, so come to the uh, reconciliation group. There is information about that um, in, your, in your worship guide, and would love for you uh, to take advantage and to join uh, in that conversation. Uh, we are continuing a series in the book of Exodus, and we started last week in Exodus chapter 1, did basically all of Exodus chapter 1 last week, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2 uh, this week. And we're looking at the book of Exodus because the book of Exodus is an ancient story. So it's an ancient story that happened to this group of people 3,500 years ago, but it's also a story that people all throughout history have resonated with deeply. It's a story that people have not only seen as something that happened to a group of people out there or a group of people a long time ago, but, but something that happens to us, that we begin to see our story in the story of Exodus, that this isn't just uh, an archaic piece of history or it's not just something uh, that happened to a group of people living in the Middle East back in the late Bronze Age, but it's the story of you and me, that it is our story and even more than that, I think what makes it so relevant is the fact that it's not just our story, that this is God's story. 
This is the story of how God brings redemption. This is the story, as we look at the book of Exodus, of how God saves us, how God draws us out of our sin and our suffering and saves us from the enemy that oppresses us. It shows us how he brings us out of slavery and he brings us to himself and he becomes our God and we become his people. When it really comes down to it, the story of the Exodus is the story about how God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Last week, I, like, like many of you, watched the Super Bowl, and uh, you, can, you can just chalk it up like clockwork every year around the Super Bowl. You're going to turn on the TV, and you're going to hear some story about this concept called, quote-unquote, redemption. Right? You're going to hear the story about a guy who missed a field goal or a guy who fumbled in the end zone or the guy who did some other stupid thing. And you're going to hear, now he's got the chance to redeem himself. And we love those kinds of stories. Okay? Like, like just to be honest, I have like 60 episodes of A Football Life DVR'd on my DVR and I eat them up like candy. But why do we love, it might be football for you, it might be something completely different, but why do we love stories like that? Because we all know that we need redemption. We all hunger for redemption. Here's what that means. It means that when we take time and we stop and we listen and we pay attention to ourselves and we pay attention to the world around us, we know there is something deeply broken in the world and not just out there, but there is something deeply wrong with me and we want desperately to see it be made right. That's why the book of Exodus has resonated with people so deeply through the ages. That is why it still resonates with us today, because it's all about redemption. But here's the thing about redemption. Redemption is not a simple thing. Redemption is not an easy thing. Redemption is not something that can just happen on the surface. It is not as simple as kicking a field goal or scoring a touchdown. It is not as simple as just trying to become a better person in your life. It's not as simple as just trying to work harder and to make something of yourself and to clean up your act because when you really start to pay attention to who you are and what the world is like, you realize that the problems go really deep. That the problems go deeper than we ever imagined. That they go down to the core of who you are. These are problems that are so deep that we can't just fix them on our own. That is why the story of Exodus gives us so much hope. Because as we're going to see as we walk throughout this story, this is not about you trying to redeem yourself. This is about God redeeming you. This is about God rescuing you out of slavery. This is about God doing for you and for me what we are powerless to do for ourselves. And it is about God taking the pain and the heartache and the mess and the brokenness and the ugliness that we experience and turning it into something more beautiful than we could ever possibly imagine. Some of you, as you come in here today, you, you feel your need for something like that. And if you're honest with yourself, you realize my life is a mess, my soul is a mess, and I got it together and I look like I got all my crap together on the outside, but inside I'm enslaved. Maybe you don't feel like that now. Wait a few years, you probably will at some point. You'll come face to face with your brokenness. You'll come face to face with your powerlessness. You'll come face to face with the depths of your need. Some of you right now, some of you are there and you don't even know it. Some of us are enslaved right now. To use an outdated illustration, it's like you're plugged into the matrix. 
And you think that you're free and you're blind to your own slavery. And listen, wherever you are today, this is God's story of redemption for you. So not just for me, not just for the person sitting next to you, not just for some group of people who lived 3,500 years ago and half a world away. This is God's story of redemption for you. Let's look at it. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So if you were here last week, we, we hit Exodus 1 last week, and we saw what's happening. That God's people, that, that the Hebrews, that the people of Israel are living in Egypt, and God is multiplying them. God is being faithful to this promise that he has given to them. God is writing this story. And then Pharaoh, this, this, this king of Egypt, who thinks that he is a god, thinks that he is a son of the gods on earth, he has looked at them and he has seen how God has blessed them. And they've increased and they've multiplied, and he's, and he's threatened by them. So he enslaves them. And, and he tries to, to crush them with back-breaking labor. What does God do? God continues to multiply and increase them. So Pharaoh ups the ante, and he's like, okay, he, he calls in the midwives, and he says, I want you to kill every male child that is born. He's trying to breed out this group of people. But what did we see? But the midwives we saw last week feared God instead of Pharaoh, and they let the babies live. So now Pharaoh's desperate. Now Pharaoh has become obsessed with killing the Hebrews. And so he just makes this proclamation, doesn't even try to hide it, just commands all the people of Egypt, when you see a Hebrew child born, drown it in the river. Okay, there are people, there are mobs of people literally ripping babies from their mother's arms and drowning them. And it is in, to that kind of horrific violent, oppressive, genocidal, maniacal situation that God steps in, that God sends a deliverer. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Can you imagine that? Especially, like those of you who are parents, can you imagine trying to hide a crying baby from your neighbors? Like I got three kids. There are times where I pull into the driveway and I hear my kids yelling from inside the house. And it, it's shouts of joy, okay? It's everybody's happy, right? The dad's home. But, but like, kids make noise. It's what they do. It's a good thing. How, how do you keep a baby hidden and quiet? Can you imagine the terror that you are living in every single moment, knowing that your neighbors could literally come over and rip your baby from your arms and drown your child? Yesterday, we were supposed to go to uh, the IRT, the Indianapolis Rep Repertory Theater. Uh, they're doing a stage adaptation of, of the diary of Anne Frank, and I've Heard that it's really good. Uh, the stomach virus knocked me out yesterday, so I didn't get to actually see it. But I've, I've heard that it's really good. And if you've read the, the diary of Anne Frank, you know that what happens in the story is that there's this entire Jewish family that has to hide for their lives from the Nazis. And if you read the story, you realize they couldn't talk at certain times of the day. They couldn't walk around at certain times of the day. They couldn't turn on the lights at certain times of the day because someone might hear them and someone might find out that they were there. Now, the situation is very similar here. Imagine trying to do that with a crying baby. 
And so Moses' mother has him and she hides him and she, 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 she keeps him for three months, but she realizes I can't hide him forever. And yet there's also something else going on in her mind because she knows that God is doing something here. She actually knows that there is something special about this baby, which yes, I realize all mothers know that there's something special about their baby, but God is giving her supernatural insight into the fact that he is going to do something special through her baby. Let me show you that. Look, look at verse 2. What does it say about her? She conceived, she bore a son, and she saw that he was a, quote, fine child. Now, fine child, that doesn't just mean that he's cute. Like, every parent thinks their kids are cute, even if they're not. So it's not just that he's, that he's cute, but remember what we saw last week from the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is actually part two of a five-part series that, that Moses eventually writes. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all one book, all one story with five different parts. And, and if you look at the Hebrew text of Exodus chapter 2, this is literally what it says. It literally says, she saw that he was good. She saw that he was good. Now, if you're a Hebrew speaker and you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you have heard that phrase before. It shows up all the way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 where God speaks creation into existence. And he speaks, and he creates light and darkness. And he speaks, and he creates the heavens and the earth. And he speaks, and he creates men and women. And then God speaks at the very end in Genesis 131, and he says this, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. She saw that he was good. God saw that it was good. See, if you're following the thread throughout this text, you find that God is giving us a clue. He is saying that the same God who spoke the universe into existence is bringing a new creation. He is going to reverse the curse of sin and death. He is going to do what he promised. He is going to set all things right, and he is going to make all things new, and he is going to do it in part through this little baby floating in the river who has been born under a death sentence. And you see this all throughout. You see this all throughout the rest of Exodus 2. You see this all throughout the, the, the book of the Exodus, how God is going to make all things new through what he is doing. Look at verse 3. You see it again. When, when she could not hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Just stop and let that land on you for a minute. She takes her child, she takes her baby, and she's trying to do the best that she can. She's like, I don't have any other options left. And so I put him in a basket, and I put him in the river. And all I can do is hope and pray, and I don't even really know what I'm hoping or praying for, and this is all I've got left. Have you ever felt like that? Like, thankfully, we don't, we don't face this kind of oppression, but have you ever felt like that? where the most precious things in the world are being ripped away from you and you don't have any other options. Your children, your parents, your spouse, your marriage, your hopes and dreams, whatever is most precious to you in the world. And sometimes it's like those things are being ripped away and all we can do is, is allow them to be pried from our hands and then you just cry and you pray and you don't even really know what you're praying for. You don't even really know what you're hoping for. You just need God to do something. Moses' mother here is in that space, and yet, and yet, she has heard of a God who does these kinds of things. 
She's heard of a God who rescued his people out of the floodwaters of death. Here's why I say that. Look again, verse 3. When she could hide him no longer, she made for him a basket of bulrushes. Now, again, if you're a Hebrew speaker and if you are familiar with the book of Genesis, you are hearing something that you have heard before. Because this word that's translated basket here, it only shows up one other time in the entire Bible. And do you know where it is? It's in the book of Genesis in the story of Noah. And it's the word that's translated ark. So literally, she took him and she placed him in an ark and she placed him in the water. Now, do you see what God is doing here? If you read the story of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, there is water covering the entire earth, and it's this watery chaos. In in the ancient world, water, flood, was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of destruction and chaos and danger. So water is over the entire earth, and then God speaks, and God causes creation to appear. God causes the dry land to appear. God causes life to spring up out of the watery depths. And then you keep reading the story and you read Genesis 3 and you read Genesis 6 and you realize that human beings have become so polluted with sin and the world has become so polluted with sin that God has to wipe it out and start over again. And how does he do it? He does it by sending a flood to cover the earth and by bringing Noah and his family through the floodwaters. And here in Exodus chapter 2, God says, I'm going to do it again. Because humanity is so entrenched in sin and things are so broken, but I'm not giving up on my creation. I am not giving up on my promise to set all things right and to make all things new. I am the God who delivers his people out of the waters of death. And so here you have this little baby floating in a basket in the middle of a river. And this is not the lazy river at Holiday World. This is the Nile River. This is the longest river in the world. This is over 4,000 miles long, and the Nile is filled with crocodiles. And and that's scary enough. But for ancient people, they actually believed that there was more going on here. See, the ancient Egyptians worshipped the Nile. They considered that the Nile was divine. They had this, this, this river god named Hopi. I think there's Hopi right there. So he's actually, uh, here he's, he's represented as a twin deity because he unites upper and lower Egypt. And, and so here's this god, and the, the river god, who is considered divine. And so when Pharaoh tells his people to throw the babies into the river, this is murder, yes, and it is attempted genocide, yes, but even more than that, this is human sacrifice. He is sacrificing to his false god. He is taking an entire race of baby boys and he is seeking to sacrifice them to the false god of the Nile. And this is where the one true God steps in and he says, I will show you who the one true God is. I will show you who is Lord of heaven and earth. I am the Lord, I am the king of heaven and earth, and I will deliver my people. I will deliver my people out of the waters of death. I will deliver my people out of the hand of Pharaoh. I will deliver my people out of all the false gods of Egypt because I am supreme over history and I am supreme over all the forces of nature and I am supreme over the gods of the nations and I am supreme over all the forces of evil. And look how he does it. Look how he delivers him. Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. 
Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. I mean, just look at this story. Look at what God is doing here. Pharaoh's daughter just happens to go down to the Nile at the exact time that Moses happens to be floating by in a basket. And it just so happens, thankfully, that she's not a genocidal maniac like her father. And, and it just so happens that her heart is moved with compassion. And it just so happens that her compassion for this baby outweighs her fear of her father. And it just so happens that Moses' sister is there. And it just so happens that Pharaoh's daughter is actually willing to pay Moses' mother to raise her own child. And it just so happens that Moses, if you keep reading the story, is going to grow up in the palace of Pharaoh where he is going to be educated like one of the princes of Egypt. Acts 7 tells us this. It tells us Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and his deeds. Do you see what God is doing? God is providentially placing Moses in Pharaoh's own house. So that, so that he can get the best education in the world. So that his life can preserve, be preserved and he doesn't die in the fields from, from slave labor. So that he can learn the inner workings of the power structures of Egypt so that one day he can bring those powers to the ground and deliver God's people. God is sovereignly working to place Moses behind enemy lines. God is sovereignly raising up a Savior in the house of his enemy. God is raising up a Savior who is going to crush Pharaoh right under his nose. God is using this genocidal decree against the people of God to raise up a Savior for his people. Look at what Pharaoh's doing. Pharaoh is trying to destroy the people of God, but he's destroying himself in the process. This is what I think of when I, when I think of Pharaoh. There he is. That, that, that's my picture uh, of Pharaoh. I, some of you guys don't know who this is. This is, this is a cartoon character named Wile E. Coyote. And here's the thing about, even if you've never heard of Wile E. Coyote, here's the basic gist. Wile E. Coyote is always out there and he's trying to, trying to catch the roadrunner. He is obsessed with destroying the roadrunner. And so he does things like this, where he straps a rocket to himself and he ends up, of course, lighting himself on fire and blowing himself up with the rocket. Or, or he rigs up this big boulder to crush the, the roadrunner, and he ends up crushing himself. And in a much more diabolical, evil, oppressive, genocidal way, that's what Pharaoh's actually doing here. You, you read the book of Exodus, he becomes obsessed with destroying the Hebrews, and he hardens his heart over and over and over again to the point where he eventually ends up destroying himself. Now, here's the thing. By the grace of God, I've never tried to kill anyone. By the grace of God, I've never attempted genocide. But this same impulse is in me. 
I find this same impulse in myself, and I find this same impulse in the people that I love, because this is how sin works. It makes you stupid. It makes you self-destructive. Sin is the suicide of the soul. It doesn't just hurt other people, it hurts you. And that's where Pharaoh is here. Pharaoh has become so intoxicated by power, he thinks that he is a god. And when his power is challenged, he can't handle it. And he becomes obsessed with winning even when it destroys him. And he goes from enslaving people to to, to seeking to murder people to seeking to commit genocide. And you keep reading the story and you find that God starts sending these plagues on Pharaoh and Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder because he's got to win and he subjects himself and these people to these horrible plagues. And eventually he ends up drowning himself and his armies in the Red Sea because he has made an idol out of his own power. So that's what it was for Pharaoh. What is it for you? What is it for me? What's the thing that you can't give up? What's the thing you're willing to kill yourself for? Some of us in in this room have struggled with this in very real ways and in different forms of addiction where we become enslaved to something and we'll keep going back to it even if it's killing us. And for some of us, that can be a substance, but for some of us, that can be something completely different. For some of us, it's work or it's sex, or it's porn, or it's body image, or it's money, or it's control, or, or sometimes it's another person. And, and we'll keep going back. We'll keep going to this thing, hoping to find life when all it is giving us is death. Because the fact of the matter is, we don't just need to be set free from the Pharaoh out there. We need to be set free from the Pharaoh in here. We need to be set free from the the self-destructive impulses of our own sin. We don't just need a Savior who can change our circumstances. We need a Savior who can change our hearts. And that's why God begins this work with Moses, but he's actually going to continue this work all throughout the Scriptures. But what I want you to see right now is that God does what he promised to do. Nothing gets in the way of God accomplishing his purposes. God is sovereign over every last detail of this story. He's even sovereign over the name that Pharaoh's daughter gives this little baby. Look at verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, the name Moses is really fascinating. Uh, There's kind of a, 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 a double meaning to it. In Egyptian, the name Moses means son. So uh, if you've heard of Tutmosis, if you've heard of Ramses, um, these are pharaohs who were called sons of the gods. But in Hebrew, it means to draw out. He's been drawn out of the water. Think about this. When Moses was absolutely helpless, did he draw himself out of the water? No, when he was absolutely helpless, he was rescued and drawn out by the sovereign hand of God. And what God's going to continue to do is he is going to use Moses to draw his people out of Egypt and to draw them through the waters of the Red Sea and to draw them out of slavery into the freedom that God has created them for. God is the one who draws out. God is the one who sovereignly rescues when we can't rescue ourselves. God is the one who brings good out of evil. God is the one who brings life out of death. And here's how I know God makes good on that promise. 
Because 1,500 years after Moses, he sent us another Moses. He sent us another deliverer. Listen, he sent another baby who was born under a death sentence. And an evil king, this time the king's name was Herod, tried to have that baby killed. But his parents took him and they hid him. And they ran away and they escaped to Egypt. And then God drew his son back up out of Egypt. And then God took his son through the waters of the river at his baptism. And eventually he plunged him under the flood of death itself. See, Moses escaped the flood of death. Jesus didn't escape the flood of death. Jesus was plunged beneath the flood of death, and he was buried in the grave, but God drew him out. He drew him out of the depths. He drew him out of the grave. He drew him out of death. And now Jesus draws his people out. Even though you and I are utterly helpless. Listen, we can no more save ourselves than a baby floating in a basket in the Nile River. We can't save ourselves, but God came to our rescue. So let me ask you, do you know what that's like? Like, Have you experienced that? Have you just learned to rest in that today, that God is the one who rescues us? Listen, I'm not asking if you're a moral person. I'm not asking if you're a religious person. I am not asking if you're doing your best to redeem yourself because that's the whole point. You can't redeem yourself. You cannot rescue yourself. You and I need to be rescued. Like a helpless baby floating in a basket, like a helpless baby that can't do anything but trust its mother. You learn to trust the rescue that Jesus has carried out through his death and his resurrection. Have you experienced that? Do you know what that's like? Some of us in this room, we've experienced that but we've never publicly declared that. And we need to go public with that fact. This is why one of the reasons that the scriptures give us baptism. This is what we do in baptism. Because in baptism, you go under the waters as a picture that you have died with Christ. And you come out of the water as a picture that you've been raised with Christ. And you say, I deserve death. But I have already died with Christ. My old self was drowned and he has raised me to new life and he has drawn me out of the waters. And for some of us, you're just walking through hard times, or maybe not now, but you're going to be walking through hard times in the future, and you feel like you're drowning. I wanted to share this with you this week. If I'm honest, sometimes I struggle to pray, Um, and so one of the things that helps me is to read a psalm, and it it gets me praying. And so uh, this past week, I was in Psalm 9, and these verses really landed on me. Psalm 9, verse 15. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made, In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. The wicked are snared in the works of their own hands. That's what's happening in the whole book of Exodus. That's what's happening to Pharaoh. He is snared in the works of his own hands. And I read this and I thought about Pharaoh and then I thought about myself. Because truth is, in my life, I've never been hunted down by a genocidal Egyptian pharaoh, which is, I guess, a good thing. Um, but, I, but I do have a wicked enemy who seeks to destroy my soul. And, and whether you're aware of it or not, you do too. You see him all throughout the Bible. They call him the serpent. They call him the accuser. They call him Satan. They call him the devil. 
And listen, I am not one of those people who sees the devil in his grilled cheese sandwiches. And I don't want to get crazy about this here, but I do believe that the devil is real. And I have seen in my life how he has set traps for me at different times in my life. I've seen how he tried to destroy my life when my first marriage fell apart. But I've also seen how God used that to show me my need for him. I've seen how he tried to destroy me through sin and temptation and through my own failures and frankly, through my own stupidity. And yet I have seen how God used that to show me the beauty of his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy in ways that I never otherwise would have known. I've seen how he tried to drown me under a flood of depression. But I've also seen how God used that to drive me to depend on him and to find my joy in him. I have seen how every time the enemy has tried to destroy me, God has turned his weapons around and has used them for my good. Because that's the way God works. He takes the weapons of the enemy and he uses them against the enemy and he uses them for our deliverance. He defeats the enemy with his own weapons. This is what Jesus did at the cross. He snared the enemy in the work of his own hands. Think about what happens at the cross. Satan tries to condemn us. That's literally what his name means. His name literally means the accuser. He tries to accuse you. He tries to condemn you. Some of you, even now, he is trying to condemn you. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, I've been too bad. I have failed. I have fallen too far. There's no hope for me. That's the voice of Satan telling you that. He is accusing you. That's what he sought to do at the cross. And do you know what happened? Jesus hung on the cross and he took all of that guilt all of that shame, all that condemnation, all the hell that you and I deserve, he took it and he conquered the devil through it and he sets us free through it. The, the enemy thought that he defeated Jesus by killing him, but Jesus turned it around and he conquered death by the power of death. And through his death, he makes us more alive than ever before. See, this isn't just true for Jesus. This is true for us as well. If you belong to Jesus, God uses all things. He even uses the diabolical attacks of the evil one for your good. That doesn't mean it's always easy. And it doesn't mean that, that everything just turns out all happy clappy. There is, there is heartache and there is disappointment and there is death. Like you think about this story. Like let's just be honest. Moses, thank God, he's rescued out of the waters. But not every baby in Egypt, was rescued out of the waters. Some of you in this room, you've experienced that. You've prayed, and you've trusted, and you've cried out to God, and your child still died. And your marriage still fell apart, and you can't understand why God would allow that. And, and to be honest, sometimes I can't understand it either. But this is where it is so vital that we remember Jesus. Jesus did not escape suffering. Jesus did not circumvent suffering. Jesus doesn't stay up there like some aloof God in the clouds and expect you and me to walk through suffering. No, he came down and he experienced it with us. He experienced it all the way to the end. He was overcome by death so that he could overcome it. And what that means is that when you go through the fire and when you go through the flood, the cross of Jesus reminds you of this vital truth, right? Just get this in your mind, that God does not work in spite of terrible circumstances. 
God works through terrible circumstances. He does not merely work in spite of terrible circumstances. He works through terrible circumstances. Love the way the old hymn says it. This is from the hymn, How Firm a Foundation. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow, for I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to you your deepest distress. I will be with you. I am not distant. It's not like I am up there and I don't care. I am with you. I am the God who became flesh, who lived among humanity, who endured the pain and the suffering and the humiliation and the torture and the death of the cross so that I could identify you. I am with you. I have sent my spirit to live inside of you. I am not walking away from you. I will be with you when everyone and everything else walks away from you. I will never walk away from you. I will be with you. And then what do you say? Your troubles to bless. Not to bless you in spite of your troubles. Not to help you avoid your troubles. I will bless you through your troubles. Not just working in spite of horrible circumstances, working through them. And, and the thing that you think is killing you could be the thing that God is using to make you more alive than ever before. So whatever you're walking through, whatever you have walked through, whatever you will walk through, he will draw you out of the waters he will raise you up. He will take the ugliest thing that you can possibly imagine and he will turn it into something that is more breathtakingly beautiful than you can possibly fathom. That's our hope. The God who gives strength out of weakness, the God who brings blessing out of cursing, the God who brings light out of darkness, the God who brings life out of death. That's what we celebrate every week here in the Lord's Supper. This is what we remind ourselves. Listen, like, have you ever thought about how crazy this is? Every week we get together and we take a piece of bread and we, we take some juice and we celebrate the murder of the Son of God. That's crazy. We celebrate the murder of the Son of God. We find our ultimate hope in the greatest act of evil that was ever committed. We find our life in the death of Christ. And here's how that should land on you. As you come and you receive the bread and the cup and you hear the body of Jesus is broken for you and the blood of Jesus was shed for you, that should remind you, whatever you're walking through right now, whatever you've walked through in the past, whatever you will walk through in the future, when you're going through the hard times and there are no good answers and there's no cliches about silver linings and chicken soup for your soul and all those different things, remember, this is how God works. He brings light out of darkness. He brings life out of death. And when you're walking through the fire and you're walking through the flood, he is with us in the midst of it. And it will not always be this way because he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again and he conquered sin and death and evil and he promised, I am returning to set all things right and to make all things new. And one day we're gonna feast together. One day, we are going to eat and drink together in a world where all things have been made new. So come and eat 
and drink and be reminded of that. Wherever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you will walk through, that he is with you, that he loves you, and that he uses all things, even the things that you think are breaking you apart, he uses those for your good. The way that we do that here, we have stations at the front, we have stations in the gallery in the back, and we simply come down the aisle and tear off a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and take it and then return to our seats. Maybe you're here and maybe, maybe you've got questions about this. Maybe you're not a follower of Jesus and we would just encourage you to remain in your seat when others come to take the bread and the cup and just, just because, just don't do a perfunctory religious thing. And so think about it and think, do, do I believe this? And, and if, if you don't believe it, like we're glad that you're here and we're glad that, that you're exploring and maybe you do, you, you do believe this, and, but you're struggling, and maybe there's some questions that you've got to ask, and maybe there's some pain that you need to process, and so we'd love to speak with you, we'd love to pray for you any way that, that we can serve you as we go to communion. So let's, uh, let's pray, let's take the Lord's Supper.